like to direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Genesis. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 2 and verses 18 through 25. Genesis 2. Beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Yahweh God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Please pray with me again once more. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. It is, it is by your word that we have life. And it's by your word that we are spiritually sustained. And Lord, we need instruction. We need clarity. And Lord, you do give clear principles in your word. But we ask for clarity not just to see those principles, but again to see where we're not living in accord with them. Lord, you alone know our hearts. Lord, you alone see everything that happens in our minds, in our emotions, in our homes. And so we need you, Spirit, to to give clarity where we're not in step with you. We want to walk in the Spirit, not just as individuals, but as, as families and as a church. And so please give us guidance. Help us to see uh, what we need to, as we said, uh, put on and what we need to put off so that we would function as the families that you've called us to be in Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think many of the problems that we face in our life are largely due to misunderstanding the purpose of things. Uh, We do things just because that's just what people have done, or this is what our families have done, and not really stop to think about, well, what is the purpose of this particular thing that I'm engaged in? For instance, many people don't understand that their primary purpose was to glorify God. 
and that their failure to glorify God is actually what's at the root of their misery and their discontentment. Or likewise, the primary purpose of the church isn't to entertain. It's not just to provide a social uh, structure for people to get together and develop friendships. The primary purpose of the church is to help us to grow in godliness, in Christ-likeness, so that we would worship him. Another thing, school. Many people think the primary purpose of school is just to, to babysit children, essentially, to keep them out of trouble. Or maybe it's just to, to give them some principles on how to make it through life, how to be a good citizen. But the primary purpose of school is to learn. The primary purpose of a phone is actually communication. That was beautiful timing. I loved it. Um, it's communication. It's not, a, it's not an entertainment device. But we forget that. The primary purpose of sex is procreation. It's not pleasure, though it comes with pleasure. And I think this is obvious in nature, but, in, but not in human relationships. I mean, just consider the problems that have emerged because people have forgotten that that's actually the purpose of sex, is procreation. And they're surprised when children come along. What about marriage? What's the purpose of marriage? If somebody were to ask you that question, how would you answer it? I think many believe that it was designed so that men and women could have appropriate sexual relationships. They could, they could be together without being ashamed. Or they think it's companionship. Or just to... Um, have somebody to, to bear the burden of life with. Or it's simply to produce and raise children together. But an investigation into the first marriage actually clearly shows us what the purpose of marriage was. And that is, it is to glorify God through relational unity. The purpose of marriage is unity. And we can see that in the text before us. Really, it's broken down into four main headings. God identifies man's problem. Then he gives a prescription to that problem. And then he articulates what marriage's purpose is. And then describes marriage's purity. And Genesis, as you know, really introduces us to the beginning of everything. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created all the animals. And then, after even creating marriage... God said it was not just good, but it was very good. Before he created man, he had said everything was good. But after he created man and woman, then he said it is very good. Everything is beautiful, lovely, sufficient, not lacking in anything. But then we get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and God says something just the opposite. And again, it's helpful to keep in mind this is before sin has entered the world. God had just said that it was very good, but then in Genesis 2.18 he says, It is not good for the man to be alone. And that brings us to man's problem. God created man with an inherent deficiency. A deficiency, of course, that he seeks, he's going to fix, he's going to ameliorate, but it's still a deficiency, and it's inherent in him. It's not an intellectual deficiency. It's not a spiritual deficiency. 
It's a relational deficiency. Man was created to be in a relationship. Now, it might just seem from a cursory reading of the text that, that God somehow messed up when he made Adam, and then he, he realizes it, and he's like, oh, what do I got to do? I got I to fix this problem. Just like whenever I try to put together a piece of Ikea furniture, I don't need to follow the directions. I can figure this out, and then at the end there's like four pieces. <laughs> I don't know where that goes. Um, that wasn't what happened. Um, God did not make a mistake. This deficiency in man was created by design. God purposely created man with the need for a wife. In fact, the text specifically states that man needs a suitable helper. That's what he needs. And actually, these two words, suitable helper, are critical to understanding the design of the woman as well as the purpose of marriage. The word suitable is in the Hebrew, neged. And the root, uh, the root of the word can be translated uh, as before or in the presence of. It, it, essentially what it conveys is that which is right before the eyes. That which is obvious. So God is going to make a solution, a solution to the obvious missing piece in Adam's life. The word helper, azer, refers to one who meets a need. In fact, this word is actually used to describe God himself. In Psalm 54, 4, he, uh, the, the psalmist says, Behold, God is my azer, my helper. He is the upholder of my life. Psalm 10, verse 14 says, But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. Speaking of God, to you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless, the azer of the fatherless. So I bring that up because this is not a condescending term. Because God uses it to describe himself. God who lacks in nothing. In fact, the word is also used to describe military allies. Or even a, a person who just sees a person in need who's poor and they brings them food or clothing. So in essence, what a, what a helper is, it's, it's a person who fills up what is lacking in another person. Meets a deficiency. And notably, this is actually how Jesus described the Holy Spirit in John 14, verse 16. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So again, the word helper, it's not a derogatory term. God is not seeking to give Adam a little helper to, to, to be his little servant so he can accomplish his own ambitions. God, what God is doing is he's giving Adam the very thing that will meet what he's lacking in. He's, he's giving Adam the missing piece to his life. And the narrative that follows this verse continues to draw out the obviousness of this need. The, the obviousness that the woman is the solution to Adam's need, his problem. If you look at verses 19 through 22, God gives the prescription for man's problem. And, it, and it's given... Uh, it's presented through contrast. God's going to contrast the animals, all the other animals that he created with the creation of woman. Right? So we're told that all the animals were created from the ground. But then, of course, the woman is created. The only thing that wasn't created from the ground, she was created from Adam's side. And then 
even as they were presented before Adam so that he would identify or name them, likewise Eve is going to be presented by God. God's going to present her to Adam and then he identifies that she is the one he has created to meet his need. So what's going on here is God is making Adam's need for a helper more obvious. He brought all these animals before Adam so that he could name them, identify them, uh, identify their purpose even. And Adam realizes none of these fit. They all have two. They all have a, they all have a mate, but I have nothing. Nothing fits me. I'm alone. God wants Adam to see this, that he would see he's deficient. He needs a helper. Man discovers that as one made in the image of God, the, the animals cannot sufficiently relate with him. In fact, that's what it really even means. Part of being made in the image of God means we were made to be in relationship. Just like the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit are in relationship, in a unified relationship together. Man also was created to be in a unified relationship, a covenantal relationship. God is trying to help Adam see this. And so God shows Adam his need, and then God works to meet that need. And that brings us to the creation of the woman. Right? As with the animals, God presents her to him, and then he identifies her. Right? Verse 22. No, Yahweh God fashioned, he created. God created to bring Adam, to meet Adam's need. Right? Into, he fashioned a woman into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, and then brought her to the man. God's providing is the idea. And then the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The point is, Adam gets it. She's for me. She is a part of me. The words woman and man are are linked. The The word for man is ish. And the word for woman is isha. And she's, she's from me. She's part of me. She's what is filling up my deficiency. And again, all the other creatures, including man, were created from the ground. But only woman was created differently. And this was purposed to help Adam recognize something. That they were made to be one. She's a part of him is the idea. They were meant to be a unit. Unity is the point. That's also why she's taken out of the man's side. It's a physical demonstration of the purpose of a unified companionship. Like to, to be alongside one person shows that you're, you're walking in step with them. You're together. You're not, you're not in opposition. You're with one another. In fact, the word rib actually means side. The Hebrew text says, and he took one from his sides or took one from part of his sides. So again, in creating man deficient and and through creating woman out of man's side, God's communicating that they were designed to work together. They are designed to work as a unit. The Puritan Matthew Henry famously wrote on this. That the woman was made out of a rib from the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, 
and near his heart to be beloved. That's what God was conveying in taking her, creating her out of Adam's side. And and notice too, again, Adam didn't have to go out and find the solution to his problem. God worked. God provided that to him. And he presented her as as a gift, not as an object to be used, but as a companion to meet the obvious need that he had. And note how the man then identifies her. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Again, they were, they were made to be a companion. In, God, in, essence, in Adam, when he calls her Isha, he's saying, she is made to be my companion. We are a unit, we go together. And actually, this is the point behind the poem that Adam makes here, which is poetry in verse 23. It says, God essentially has designed us to be together. And that is critical for us to understand if we're going to understand the purpose of marriage. And that brings us to, again, the next verse. Verse 24. For this reason, in light of what Adam just recognized, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right? The text is emphasizing that marriage was designed for unity, and therefore man will do three things. He will leave, he will join, and then be unified with his wife. So let's just look at those three words. First, there's a leaving. The Hebrew word means to leave behind, to go away from. And the point is that there's going to, there needs to be a clear separation from one's previous family to the new family. They are leaving their father and mother, and now they're going to be a different unit, a separate unit. They're going to have an identity all their own that's distinct from their parents. And this conveys that their primary loyalty is no longer to their parents, which is significant given the the mindset of many uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, peoples. The, 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 The larger family was more or less seen as the primary thing, the tribe, is what was vital in a nation. And even more so, the family unit. But God is saying here, the husband and a wife, their primary loyalties, besides to God, is going to be to one another. And so they should make decisions not based upon what their parents want, but based upon what they both recognize as what is God's will for their marriage. Secondly, there's a joining. There's a leaving, and then there's a joining. I like the the ESV translation, hold fast. Sometimes translated to cleave. It means to to, to stick together or to cling together. The word is often used to describe how Israel needs to cling to God. Deuteronomy 13, 14. Uh, Moses says, you shall walk after Yahweh your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey, obey his voice. And you shall serve him and... Hold fast to him. Don't let go of him. Cling to him. Joshua 23.8. Joshua says, You shall cling to Yahweh your God just as you have done this day. And obviously this doesn't mean a, a physical clinging on. It's, it's one's devotion. Their heart needs to be to hold fast to their wife. To their husband. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 19.6 when he's asked about marriage... He says, what God has joined together, there's your word, 
let no man separate. Because God didn't design marriage for separation. He joined it, he, he created it for there to be a clinging, a hold, holding fast to one another. When there's a divorce, that ruins, obviously, God's intent. Thirdly, there needs to be unity. The third thing this verse indicates, again, is, is unity. And the two shall become one flesh. God has designed man and women, woman ultimately for this end. Right? God's declaration for that man, it's not good for man to be alone. The making woman out of his side, the, the woman's functional identity to, to be a suitable helper. And even Christ's declaration, what God has brought together, let no man separate. All of that emphasizes that marriage's purpose is for unity. To work together as a unit. Some commentators believe that becoming one flesh just refers to the physical union that takes place when marriage is consummated. Others believe it's actually referring to the creation of a child. And and I think that that, that's possible. They're probably in view. But if you look again at the whole surrounding context, what's being emphasized, it's obvious. Unity is what is in view. They are to cease pursuing life as individual, and they're supposed to pursue life with unified aims. They're to function as a unit. Every major life decision, all their aims, all their ambition, all their pursuits, the point is that it should be done together. They're not to think so much as individuals anymore, but as a couple, as a unit. And what often masquerades as unity in our culture is, is really nothing that, except um, toleration, a tolerant autonomy. Right? We assume that if we just let people do what they want to do, then there's going to be unity. Right? I'll let you do your thing if you let me do my thing. And, and, we, and we lie to ourselves and say, yeah, we're functioning as a, as a unit. But that's really not unity. Because unity, by definition, means oneness. Right? It comes from the Latin unitas, which means one. Webster's defines it as the quality or state of not being multiple. In other words, one, a single unit, you function together. And I think this is often where Christian marriages fail. And, and often in a, in a way that we're just totally blind to it. We lie to ourselves again saying, yes, we're functioning as a unit, but practically that's just not the case at all. People think of unity in a marriage as some abstract thing, uh, very relative in what it looks like lived out. Right? Somebody will say, well, yeah, we have unity in our house. We live together. Well, that's not unity. Where every time we go out to eat, I just do whatever she wants. We have unity. But that's not unity. Unity really is what you see again in the Trinity. Think about how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in everything from creation to redemption. Right? They, they're, they're, always, they're, not, they're not working in opposition, but they're accomplishing the same purpose. They have different functions, but they work together in those functions. They have the same goal, same value, same love. 
Right? In such unity, of course, it's going it's to require some deferral to one another, some submission to one another. But there's a joy in all of it, right, in the Trinity, because they're united in their aims and loves. And I, I want to emphasize this because the aim of unity is not just to agree on a decision. I mean, some people think, well, because, you know, my wife just agreed to follow me or I just agreed to do what my wife wanted, that that's unity. But it's not. Not unless you're convinced that that's the right thing to do and you're both excited about pursuing it. If, if you're not equal in your passion for that thing, it's not really unity. Maybe it's a step closer, but it's not the real thing. Right? Unity is to agree on why that decision is made, not just on what the decision should be. If a husband makes decisions simply because he wants, he just wants to make his wife happy, so every time he's just, well, whatever you want, honey. Again, that's not unity. In fact, if that's why he makes his decisions, he's an idolater. Because he's not making his decisions based upon what Scripture says. He's just doing what she wants. She's driving his decisions. Well, somebody might ask, well, isn't he dying to self in that? Well, yes, but he's not dying to self in submission to Scripture, but rather in submission to his wife. Now, of course, it would be a very different picture if what she's, she's asking him to do is she's appealing to biblical principles, saying, Honey, this is what the Bible says. We, the, the, these are the principles that factor in his decision. I want us to follow Scripture. And he realizes, Oh, that's what Scripture teaches. Yes, that's, that's what we should do then. Well, that's different because now he's submitting to Scripture. And she's helping him recognize that that's how that's that that's how that's how the decision should be made. In fact, true unity can only be achieved if each member is committed to following Scripture. At least in a Christian marriage, you can have unity in an unbelieving marriage. Two unbelievers decide that they're going to worship the same idol, be it entertainment, be it money, whatever. They can be unified in that. But not in a Christian marriage. In order for there to be true unity in a Christian marriage, the decisions need to be based upon scriptural principles, not preferences. And of course, if it's something the scripture doesn't speak to, then yeah, you can defer to one another in preference. That's fine. But especially in these major decisions, God does have plenty to say about even the minor decisions in our life. And we need to be thinking through those things, right? As we memorized in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we need to seek to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's how we worship. Again, Christian worship isn't just about coming to church and singing. It's about discerning God's will for our life. And that's why it's so critical that there is the word of God is central in a family so that the family recognizes God's principles so they can discern what God's will is so they can function as a unit. If they're not doing that, there's not going to be unity, and it's just going to be dysfunctional. And I think in most Christian households, it's just frankly hypocrisy. We're going to, we're going to function dysfunctionally at home, but then we're going to kind of, kind of come to church, and we're going to pretend like everything's just fine. We're happy. Important decisions are what's going to test our unity. How unified are we really? But it's important to recognize that true unity is cultivated not just through those major decisions that come up, but daily 
day after day by investing in the word. Right? And then as, because that's what's going to create the unity. And then the important decisions test that. Do we really believe what we've been reading? Do we really love the word of God more than our own passions and our own lusts? Are we really driven by God's word or our own pride? Like the decisions, especially if we're not aligned, are going to show there's flaws in our thinking. There's flaws in our hearts that need to be dealt with. And this is why Paul says in Philippians 2, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, of the same, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then Paul, of course, points to Christ as the, exact, uh, as the example that we should follow. But he, he, he gave up everything in order to meet our need. But what I want to point out is Jesus didn't just humble himself. He didn't just die to himself and give in to what his people wanted. Right? Okay, I'm going to show how humble I am and then I'm going to come to my people and whatever they want me to do, I'm going to do for them. Because that's humility. That's not what he did. In fact, when Peter said, hey, Christ, I actually have a better idea than you going to the cross. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Because you are interfering with God's plan and God's call in my life. Christ knew what God's will was. And that's how he could go. He's such a great leader. And he had no problem telling Peter that he was out of line. Didn't hate Peter. He wasn't trying to humiliate Peter, but he was trying to help Peter realize, Peter, you're not following God's will, you're following your own will. And I will not yield. And praise God that he didn't. Christ did submit himself, but he submitted himself to the Father's designs, to the Father's will. Again, true humility is seen in submitting ourselves to God, not to just other people. We need to know God's will then. We need to have God's word governing our lives. So again, the, the question would then arise, how can a man and a woman then, who are so different, I mean, often the, the opposites attract, we marry people that are different from us, we have different, pref, we have in, interest, or different, man, different interests, different preferences, different strengths. How can we actually function as a unit? I think it comes down to two words, truth and love. First, we have to discern together what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. And we do that through God's word. And unless, unless we agree on this, unity is going to be impossible. Because we're going to, if we can't agree on what's true, what's good, and beautiful, you're going to be going separate ways. So it's through examining God's objective words that we can objectively know what is true and good and beautiful. Secondly, we, we pursue these things through love. We read this earlier in Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love. This is great. Which binds everything together in the perfect bond of unity. Love is what allows us to continue to maintain that unity. 
Truth tells us what we should be unified in. What's good, true and good and beautiful. Right? God's word gives us that instruction. How do we live that out? We continue to love. We continue not to, not to care as much about our own interests, but primarily Christ's interests. And then if that doesn't apply, just to our, our spouse's interests. So again, if there's any lack of unity in marriage, it's because we've either failed to discern what is true, good, and beautiful, or we're just not loving. We're being selfish. We're, we're holding fast to what we want. And we want our spouse just to get in line with whatever that is. Right? But by definition, a Christian no longer pursues his own will. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. We no longer live for our own sakes, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. That's what it means to be a Christian. Obeying God's word, seeking his, his will, is what defines our life. All our decisions should really flow from the singular aim of discerning God's will for us, right? That is what worship is. This is your true spiritual worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Lay your life down, be a living sacrifice, and do you discern how to sacrifice by having your mind renewed, being transformed, so you could discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. And of course, this is why marriage to an unbeliever is prohibited. Right? Unity in pursuing the Lord's will is, would be absolutely impossible. Not because your spouse is your enemy, but because your spouse is the Lord's enemy. Before we come to Christ, God is our enemy. And you, you if you're a Christian, you have loyalty ultimately to Christ. And so if, you're a, if your wife or your husband doesn't, there's not going to be unity. It's impossible. Because your loyalties are very different. That's why the Lord pro- prohibits it. A marriage will never function according to its design unless both spouses cease to be guided by their own individualism and seek to work together in pursuing God's will. And note again, not the husband's will, not the wife's will, but God's will. Right? And this is why the basic New Testament instruction the apostle gives to spouses is for husbands to love their wives and wives to submit to their husbands. Right? No godly woman is going to have a difficult time submitting to her husband if he's constantly seeking to love her like Christ loved the church. He's, he's gonna, if he's willing to endure all manner of suffering and pain to meet her needs, living with her in an understanding way and clearly seeking to figure out what God's will is and ignoring his own personal selfish desires. No woman's going to have a hard time with that if she's godly. And likewise, no godly woman's going to be hindered, no, sorry, no godly man's going to be hindered from leading his family towards God's will if his wife is consistently willing to respect him, support him, and follow him. Again, so unity is so critical to the health of marriages, couples should seek to be unified in everything that they do. And I think, for instance, this, this should be flesh itself out in how we minister, even within the church. For instance, maybe there's a wife who wants to serve in the nursery. She sees that there's a need. She loves kids. Or maybe she just wants to work with other women who are good with working with little children. The husband should also have a unified desire for her as wife to do that. 
It doesn't mean he has to have the same heart for nursery, at least to serve in the nursery, but he would have to be so committed he'd be willing to make sacrifices to make sure that need got met. It doesn't mean they actually have to even serve together. They could be serving in different ministries, but they both have the same love for those ministries, and they're willing to make sacrifices to make sure those ministries get fulfilled. Right? Just like you have in the Trinity. The Father, Father elected, and the Son died on the cross. The Son saved. The Spirit regenerated. They all had different functions, but they worked together. That's what it should look like in a marriage. And I think this applies to non-church related things too, like hobbies. A spouse should see the benefit of uh, their other spouse investing in their hobby. If they don't, if they don't again, there's going to be a breakdown in unity, right? Um, whatever you enjoy doing, you should be able to, from biblical, from scripture, biblical principles, be able to say, I want you to engage in this activity, this hobby you do, hunting, let's say, because I see the benefit it brings to you, um, and, I, and I want you to have that benefit. And so I'm willing to make the sacrifice to see that happen. But if a husband and wife don't feel the same unity there, it's probably not something that should be taking place. You should have unity based on biblical principles. For instance, a wife goes running every morning. While the husband watches the kids, because again, he sees the value in her running because it relieves stress. And he loves her and doesn't want her to be stressed out. A wife encourages her husband to, to go to a conference in a different state because she sees how the conference helps him. Even though that means time away from the family, it's going to mean double the stress, double the workload. She sees the benefit, and so she joyfully says, yes, go. Have a break. Learn how to do you know, better at your work. So you can see how the design for unity actually serves to help godly couples stay in line with God's will. Because there's an immediate accountability in marriage. Right? The, the minute a, a spouse says, hey, I want to do this, if it's not based upon biblical principles, there's going to immediately feel this tug. Because there, one spouse just isn't going to feel in line with it. Either because one spouse is out of line with God's word, or uh, both are being selfish in some way. That there's, a, there's immediate accountability. And because unity is the purpose of marriage, one of the primary things that kills marriages is, is thinking of your spouse as your opponent or your enemy. And often this happens because, again, we're selfish creatures. And we're convinced that our will, what we want, is what we should be doing. And so if we get any sort of opposition, that person is my opponent. But that... Will any, whenever that lie enters into our mind, that, is, that will destroy a marriage. It is, it is impossible to have unity because by definition, enemies or opponents don't, aren't working for you. You can't be unified with your enemy until you're reconciled. All right, your, your spouse is never your enemy. Sin is. Even if they're an unbeliever. Sin is still the enemy. Verse 25 presents us with an interesting note. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The chapter really ends with this affirmation of marriage's purity. 
Now, obviously, there was no reason for shame because there hadn't been any sin yet. That doesn't come in until the next chapter. There's nothing to be ashamed of. But just imagine the intimacy and the unity that would have continued to exist in a relationship where there was never any sin. No shame. And I believe that's the point of the statement. This was the original design. The first marriage enjoyed a unity and perfect intimacy that would have continued had they not chosen to sin. But they did sin. Adam was clearly called to be the leader of his family, but he failed in that. Eve believed the serpent's lie and rejected God's instruction. And then Adam just followed his wife and then later blamed her for his failure. Right? And the result of all this was that they, the, both, the, both Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, never allowed to return. And the whole rest of Scripture really is the story of how mankind can be restored to this Eden-like state that God had originally designed. How can this finally come together according to its design again? Because sin had entered the world, such a restoration could never take place until sin was completely erased. And this is why Christ is called the new Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Because he succeeded where Adam failed. Unlike Adam, who shirked his responsibility and then later blamed his wife, Christ paid the price for our failures. He didn't just stick the, his finger at us and say, you're guilty. He says, you are guilty, but I'll pay the price for your guilt. Which is what Adam should have done. Had he not participated in the sin. And Christ sacrificially cleansed us from our sin and condemnation through his own death on the cross. And Christ, like Adam, in order to receive his bride, he needed to be put to sleep. The figurative of death. He also needed to be pierced in his side, like Adam. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ was a new and a better Adam because he was recovering what was lost of the fall. In fact, this is why Paul says what he does in Ephesians 5 when he describes marriage really as a reflection of Christ in the church. In fact, he cites this passage in Genesis. He says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So Christ, as the new Adam, is now our head and the church is his bride. And we follow him by helping him rule over creation and by fulfilling his purposes as he's instructed us. And therefore, our present union with Christ, Christians' union with Christ, is going to be primarily demonstrated in our marriages. It's going to be primarily demonstrated as we demonstrate unity within our marriages. Our Christianity should be primarily reflected in our homes, not out of our homes, is my point. What's going on at home is a reflection of where your family really is spiritually. It's a reflection of how good a leader the husband is, how good a follower the wife is, how devoted they are to Scripture, how well their kids obey. All of that is a reflection of where a person truly is at. And so that's where our effort needs to be. 
Not because that doesn't mean we shouldn't do evangelize, doesn't mean we shouldn't work hard at work, it doesn't mean we shouldn't serve in the church. It means that's where the work primarily needs to start. We can't ignore our families and our responsibilities within our families and expect to have an impact on the kingdom of God uh, in doing so. And that's why as, as elders, this is such a huge issue for us. We know we cannot have the impact we need, and we will not be able to withstand the storms that are coming unless, as families, we get on the same page. And we each live according to what God has designed us to live. Let's pray for His grace towards that end. Father, we, 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 we realize we're weak. I don't think there's a, a single family in here that would say, yeah, we're doing this perfect. But, Lord, it's not always obvious where the shortcomings are happening. So I do pray that you would help us as couples and as families, that the kids would be involved and grandparents, that you would use all of us to expose where changes need to be made. Where are we out of step with you? How can we achieve not just unity in our families, but unity with you, through you in our families? And for that, we need just great grace. And we, we, we plead for grace that we might have families that truly exalt you and honor you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.